Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And while you turn there, I'd like to take a moment to introduce a sermon series that we will be going through for the next six weeks. And the sermon series, you can see by the title of your insert in the bulletin, is Membership Matters. Now, I expect that there are probably few topics of less immediate study for Christians than this issue of church membership. I've never known a new believer who immediately dove into this as their study. And yet, I hope, as you'll see over the next few weeks, it is important. It's been important since the foundation of this church. If you read our constitution and bylaws, there are clear qualifications for, for membership, um, what we call the voting roster. And over time, that, that list became separate from the church corporate. And yet, the elders and the leadership of this church, as we've been ministering over the last um, few years especially, have, have become more and more convinced, more and more convicted that some teaching and some change in how we do membership is, is necessary for the health of the church, for the, for the body serving itself in love. There's two reasons for that. One is that we live in a day and an age where more and more people prize their autonomy, prize their freedom, and are less and less willing to make commitments, to join things. And the church becomes more and more, in many cases, like a social club. You go, you hear a good message, you get encouraged, maybe a pep rally, a motivational speaker. But it's a far cry in many cases from the language of the New Testament, as we will see this morning. So in many cases, people don't feel united, they don't feel joined, they don't submit themselves to churches. I know that's not the case with many of you here. There's a second need as well, which is the body needs to be, we believe, more self-aware of who it is. Now this again is no new thought. There are many, many lists that our church has in an attempt to get their arms around who is the church. And I want to highlight for you just how insufficient those are. If we, if we need truly to know who we are, to live out and to honor Christ, the, the current tools we have are not very helpful. So if I say, okay, who is Martinsdale Community Church? Would you say the voting roster? Well, I hope it's more than that. Would you say it's the uh, photo directory? Is this who Martinsdale Community Church is? Is this where we would turn to? Is this our record? Maybe it's the uh, list of mailboxes. Maybe it's the name tags. Maybe it's the uh, directory. Do you see that we are not for want of many partial and incomplete lists of who the church is? This is something that in many ways, in many places, people have been striving to do, and yet none of them is, is entirely authoritative. None of them is entirely accurate. And so just to let you know where we're going from the beginning, over the next six weeks, what the elders are going to propose, what we're going to talk to you guys about, what we're going to teach on, is, is encouraging and instructing the body, encouraging and instructing you about what the New Testament calls us to do in uniting to a church. Many of you have already done this. And then we are going to try to help make the church more self-aware by making that evident to all so that we know who we are, ultimately culminating in a list of members separate from the voting roster. This won't con affect congregational rule or control in any way, but simply so that we can know who we are, so that we can serve the body, so the leadership can know who the flock is, so the flock can know who the flock is. And this morning, as I, as I dive into doing this, so just think of those two concepts, a call to commitment 
and a call to being self-aware. That, that's what, that's what we're, we're promoting. That's what we're passionate about. And all ultimately, so the body can serve and love and fulfill the commands of Scripture better and more fully. So if you look at your, your bulletin, um, I'd like to start by asking the question, what exactly does church membership mean? When I use this term, church membership, what do I mean? And the term can be colluded because frequently we think of membership as clubs, organizations. I'm, I'm a member of Triple, you know, of, of AAA Automotive Club. That, that's not what we mean, that's not what Scripture means when it talks about membership. Really, if you think about what membership means, it means being a member, being united to something. And these are the imagery of the New Testament. Far from the notion of a club or just a, a social gathering, the, the metaphors the New Testament uses are visceral, are, are involve commitments, two-way commitments, involve relationships. Now, so I just want to look at three of them. There are more. The first, and we see this in Romans 12, let's read verses 4 through 5. And here is where you get the, the word member, the concept of membership. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. There is biblical church membership. We are members of one another. So the picture here, the first, what does it mean to be a member, church membership mean? It means you are joined to a body. It means you're joined to a body. That's the language. We'll, we'll see if you, you can turn with me or I'll just read for you. 1 Corinthians 12, listen to Paul making that body metaphor even more explicit. 12, 21 to 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we just bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Now get this. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members, there's that word again, may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. See that, that picture of unity? I want you to press this out. I, I don't think anyone here is unaware of how many fingers and toes they have. You are self-aware when it comes to your body. And, and you would think it a strange thing if you woke up some morning with some new growth. You'd probably want it removed. The picture of membership is visceral, it's vital, it's a strong connection, and it's a self-aware connection. You know who you are. Paul's metaphor here is this. We don't speak of our, our various members of our body as doing well or not doing well. If you hit your thumb, if your arm hurts, you tell somebody, I hurt. I hurt. I am in pain. That's Paul's point. And if you are after Thanksgiving and you've got that, that glow from the tetrafan and you're sitting there on the couch watching the TV or the game and you're just sort of sitting there happy, you don't say, my stomach is happy. You say, I'm feeling good, right? Because the members constitute the whole. That's Paul's point here. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So press that language of a body out. 
It takes surgery to remove members of bodies. It takes surgery to add members of bodies. These things don't happen lightly. They don't happen casually. The only example I can think of where it's light and casual is Mr. Potato Head. But yet, I think in many cases, people treat the church as though the church is Mr. Potato Head. And an arm goes on here, and it comes off there, and a toe goes over here, and and we're not treating it like we're actually a body. And, And the reality is we're not members of each other, and we're not so joined that when one is hurt, all of us hurt. But you know what it feels like when somebody is struggling, when someone has gone through some suffering. The Childs right now, Jim Childs grieving the death of his wife, and, and we all suffer. We all feel the weight of that. Or when someone rejoices over, over news, a marriage, pregnancy, a birth, and, and we rejoice together. That's the first metaphor. It's being joined to a body. It's another metaphor. And let's turn your Bibles to, to 1 Timothy 3. But while you turn there, I want to set this passage up by reading something Jesus said in Mark 10. Jesus in Mark 10, in response to the Apostle Peter, saying, Lord, we've left everything for you. And I think Peter was expecting a pat on the back. Well done. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother, or sister, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So here's my question. Jesus says, if you've left, if you've lost relationships, if your your love for Christ, if your faith has severed relationships in your life such that you don't have friends anymore who are your friends or maybe it's alienated you from your parents or from your children or from your siblings. Jesus promises in this life now, in this life now, you'll receive back more, tenfold those things, and in the life to come, eternal life. Well, how can Jesus make such a promise? Well, it's because, and here's your second blank, you are adopted into a family. You are adopted into a family or born, either metaphor is fine, birth or adoption. Now, look at what 1 Timothy has to say. I hope to come to you soon, in chapter 3, verse 14. But I am writing these things so that that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. The church is God's family. Church is God's family. And, and so if you've left, if you've had to give up relationships because of Christ, Christ promises you receive them back tenfold in the church. You receive them back tenfold in the church. Here you will find mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children and sons and daughters. That, but press that family me- metaphor further because we'd like to talk about the church family. But again, I've, I've, I've gone through this three times now. We are well aware each time a new child is added to our family. Serena, most importantly. It never slips by her. <laughs> and even if you use the adoption metaphor, which is another biblical metaphor, it would seem strange to me, if, and probably I think to you, if you came home one day to find that for the last three months there's been new family members in your home that you didn't know about. Families function. We can only carry out our responsibilities in a family. We can only serve each other. The authority structure of parents can only work if the parents know who the children are, the children know who their brothers and sisters are. 
Families need to be self-aware. The church involves that level of commitment and demands that level of self-awareness. Thirdly, a third metaphor. If you turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. I'll give you the blank here. What does it mean to be a member of a church? It means you're joined to a body. It means you're adopted into a family. It means you are citizens in a kingdom. You are citizens in a kingdom. Now, Jesus here has just asked his disciples who they think he is. Peter, in verse 16, makes his bold and accurate, he's got it right this time, statement. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of God, the living God. And Jesus answered, And blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whenever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus now begins using political, geopolitical, city-state metaphors. There's a war. Political entities get into wars. There's gates of hell. They aren't going to prevail against the church. There's a kingdom of heaven. And there are keys given. And we know that, that the Roman Catholics make much of this. Keys being given to Peter. What on earth is that supposed to mean? Turn two chapters over. Turn two chapters over to Matthew 18. With the exact same language is used. So Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16, I'm giving you keys that will involve binding and loosing, and your judgments on earth, your binding and loosing, whatever that means, on earth will reflect God's binding and loosing in heaven. And we get nervous when we hear that. This is the only two times in all four Gospels Jesus mentions the church by name. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established at the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a direct word-for-word quotation of what he says in chapter 16 with one radically important difference. The yous here are plural. So what he at first says to Peter, because Peter is the first one to make the confession, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. Okay, Peter? On that confession, we build my church. Gates of hell won't prevail against you. And based on your profession, I'm giving you these keys. Two chapters later, these same keys, the same authority is given not to the leaders of the church, but to the entire church. Notice the entire church is the one exercising church discipline. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but in those cases where a brother refuses to listen to a brother or sister and it goes to two or three, The final step, the authority of giving one over, the final step of of discipline rests not in the hands of the elders, in the hands of the body. You tell it to the church, and if the church won't listen, let him be to you as a tax collector. For whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What he's saying is, this binding and loosing is, is, is about receiving in 
and excluding members from the church. Just as I'll read you a quote from John von Lehman. By the way, this book, Church Membership, was very helpful as the elders and the deacons read through this. And we've got a number of copies available in the library and in the bookstore if you're interested. But Lehman makes this comparison between the authority that Christ has given the state in the sword and the authority that Christ has given the church in these keys. He says this, Just as the Bible establishes the governments of nations as your highest authority on earth when it comes to your citizenship in that nation, so the Bible establishes the local church as the highest authority on earth when it comes to your discipleship to Christ and your citizenship in Christ's present and promised kingdom. Jesus instituted the state by giving it the power of the sword. Narrowly, this means the state can take your life under the authority of God's word. By implication, this means the state has the enforcement mechanism necessary for establishing the basic structures of society. Similarly, Jesus has instituted the local church by giving it the power of the keys. Narrowly, this means it can remove a person from church membership under the authority of God's word. And by implication, this means it has the enforcement mechanism necessary for establishing the basic structures of kingdom life, such as deciding who is publicly recognized as a citizen. So Christ gives Matthew this binding and loosing keys, and then two chapters later, the entire church has this binding and loosing. And to make it abundantly clear what we're talking about, in John 20, 23, Jesus speaking to all his disciples says to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they have been forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The church on earth is by recognizing, bringing people in, extending the right hand of fellowship, as we'll see in our study, adding them to their number, is recognizing, is, is affirming the faith of men and women and the church in, in severe and unpleasant times due to unrepentant sin, is, is excluding and, and, no, and removing that affirmation of the faith of others. It's marking itself out. It's been given the right and the authority to mark itself out by Christ. So think of all three of these metaphors, joined to a body, adopted into a family, citizens of a kingdom. These all involve close commitments and connections with privileges and responsibilities. It couldn't be further removed from the notion of a club or a social gathering. So here's my definition, just working definition then. What is church membership? Membership establishes biblically defined relationships and responsibilities between individual Christians and the local body. Membership establishes biblically defined relationships and responsibilities between individual Christians and the local body. And that's something we'll look at in the coming weeks is we have a special commitment to each other that we have to no other Christians anywhere on earth. We have a special responsibilities and privileges and a relationship which is unique amongst all other churches and Christians because we are a local body. And membership, however, whatever mechanism you want to use, notice I haven't talked about a mechanism of membership. The scriptures don't give us a mechanism of membership. It can be done many different ways. But this relationship, we're a body, we're a family, we're fellow citizens together is what the scripture gives us. Or we are vines on a branch. All of them involve this type of joined committedness. Now, there are many different ways for churches to do membership. And there's many different ways for churches to be self-aware of who they are. If you think of the underground church in China, 
there probably isn't much need in those churches for lists of members. When you've only got a dozen people, you can probably remember who they are, and having things written down probably isn't very safe. But as we move now to our next point, where is church membership seen? I think we'll see in the Bible evidences, not only that they were bringing people formally and making these commitments, but that they were taking measures to be self-aware, to record who these people were so that the church would know who the church was. I think this is a biblical practice and something that we can see biblically. Where is church membership seen? Well, if you turn with me to Acts, it's present on the very first day of the church. It's present on the first day of the church. And by that I'm referring to the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles gathered and descends upon the Jews who are assembled at Peter's preaching. We see the, the indwelling Holy Spirit is the mark, the sign, the seal of the church. This is the beginning of the church. And we see at this very first day, Membership. Acts 2, 41 to 47. So he, so those who were saved, sorry, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'm going to suggest to you that means added to some sort of record keeping. I, I can keep reading to make prove that point clearly. But I want you to notice that this they know who got added. People were added. People were baptized. People were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through them by the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And I just want to stop. How do you do that unless you know who all is? How do you have everything in common if you don't know who everybody is? Notice all this demands some self-awareness. And day after day, attending the temple together. How do they know they were together if they don't know who they are? How do they know when to meet in the temple? Taking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You get that? The early church was keeping record. Not, not, because, not because they were legalists, not because they're power hungry, but because we've got to care for these people. In the first case, becoming a Christian meant maybe losing your job. The reason they were sharing everything is people were starving. People were hungry. People were persecuted. And we, we got to make sure we take care of our own, they were saying. So we're keeping a list. We're adding people to a registry. We're, we're adding them to our number. And we're pouring our, and pooling our resources together to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. That's why they're doing it. The early church cared about membership so that it could love itself, so that it could love its members, so they could do ministry and serve which is point B, actually. Where is church membership seen? It's seen first at the first day of the church. Secondly, it's seen, it's used to carry out ministry. We're just going to stay in Acts. Go to chapter 6 with me now. I'm sure initially, in many cases, they tried to keep things mentally. But we'll see a point here where that sometimes gets too difficult. There's too many people and mistakes get made. Acts 6. Now in these days, verse 1, when the disciples were increasing in number, 
A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, is, is it not right that we should give up preaching the word of God and serve tables? And they, they pick for themselves men and we get a list of their names. They're all given. The idea being this record keeping is, is formal. Who are these men who are going to minister to the widows? They have widows. They know who those widows are. And the challenge is, hey, we're not caring for them effectively. Just this sort of, hey, we know who the widows are isn't cutting it anymore. Some are being neglected. So what happens then in 1 Timothy? By the time Paul's writing to Timothy in Ephesus, this has been institutionalized. They got a list. It's called a widow's list. Not to exert power and authority, not because they're legalistic, because ministry needs to be done, and we can't minister to ourselves if we don't know who ourselves is. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them take care of them first. Now jump down to verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled. You get enrolled into lists, record-keeping, self-awareness. The church needs to know who the widows are that they're going to care for. This ministry needs to be done. Self-awareness, a knowledge of these commitments, these commitments and a knowledge of who's made them. Who must we care for? You get that, right? In one sense, we're told to care for everybody. Love your neighbor as yourself. And God may put it upon your heart to help somebody who has need in the next town over or in the next country over. But whereas that type of love is a volunteer sort of love, no such volunteerism exists in the local church. Paul is telling Timothy, whereas you are free to love other widows, you must care for your widows. You're free to love other people, Paul will say later, you must care for your own family. You get that. And how do you know who your family is? There used to be some form of record keeping. So where's church membership seen? Seen in the first day of the church. It's used to carry out ministry. And it's evident back in Acts, turn back to Acts 4, and we'll just walk through Acts for a few minutes. It's evident in the early church's self-awareness. I want you to think through as you read through these verses, and again, self-awareness meaning who is the church? I pointed to seven different lists we've got. You can add in the prayer list all attempting in some way or shape or form to put their hands on who the church is. Who do we need to send an email to if something comes up? And, and we've got those tools in place. We're, we're suggesting we, we refine them, we improve upon them. We're not suggesting that we do anything new. The church in the book of Acts is incredibly self-aware. Acts 4.4 4. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. I suggest to you the only reason Luke knows that, after doing diligent study, as he assures Theophilus, is because somebody was keeping track. Or Acts 5, 12 to 14. Go over a chapter. This is just after Ananias and Sapphira have been struck dead. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the, now notice that, they were all together in Solomon's portico. How do you know they were all there if you don't know who they is? But they were all together in Solomon's portico. Somehow they knew, hey, we're all here, time to get started. 
It's the same thing in 1 Corinthians. If you remember, when we talk about communion, Paul tells them they go ahead, they don't wait for everyone to show up. You can't know if everyone's showing up if you don't know who everybody is. We need it for ministry. We need it to be self-aware. Look over to chapter 12 of Acts. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. They were of the church. A local church claimed them, identified with them. You get get the implications here. These are members of a church. They belonged to the church. Or chapter 14. Pick it up in verse 24. Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey and they passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. Now how do you gather the church together without knowing who the church is? See how all these things are assumed here? You can't, this can't be done unless you're self-aware, unless you know who we are. The ministry done in the book of Acts simply cannot be done without being the church being self-aware. Then in, in chapter 15, the same thing. I'll, I'll just skip over this. There's many more and more examples. So they're all assembled. They all gather together. There's a fourth place, I think, though, that, that church membership is seen. It's seen in, in the very first day of the church. It's seen as being used to carry out ministry. It's seen in the church's self-awareness of the early church. But there's another record of names that God keeps in heaven. Have you ever thought of that? That God has a list of church membership. He does. It's in the book. Philippians 2, 4, sorry, Philippians 4, verse 3, Paul speaks of those whose names are in the book of life. Now, God doesn't suffer the problems that you and I suffer of getting confused and knowing who's who and who's in and who's out and what's up and what's down. He's still got a book. There is a registry of names of the members of his church. Revelation 21:27 also speaks of this. Nothing unclean will enter this new Jerusalem, nor does anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's a roster, and that roster sets apart those who enter and those who don't. And God's got it written, and it's not because he's going to forget. It's meant to be a public record. You get that? Why would God write the names in the book? It's not because he's going to forget. He is vindicating and validating this notion of a public record. Who gets to enter this new heavenly Jerusalem? His church, his bride, his people. How do we know who those are? God says, I got a book. They're written. You can see. Record key. That's where membership is seen. I want to take the remaining time we have and address probably the most important issue, which is why does this matter? Why why spend six weeks on this? Okay, Jeremy, 
Maybe, maybe it is biblical. Maybe it is there. Didn't see it before, I guess. Maybe I do now. But why, why make such a big deal of this? The coming weeks, I think, will answer that question more fully. Just trust us, the elders, at least initially. We see this as a very practical, a very immediate need for the church to serve and love itself and, and be able to do ministry. But I'll give you, I'll give you two categories of reasons right now. Um, the first is because the local church has distinct responsibilities to fulfill. The local church has distinct responsibilities to fulfill. You understand that you and I, in this body, as part of Marksville Community Church, have responsibilities to fulfill. No other Christians, no other body has. It ties into our unique relationship and responsibilities. For instance, we are tasked, and we saw this already in Matthew 16 and 18, in, to identify its members. Christ gave the local church the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. And we saw in Matthew 18 that loosing meant excluding someone. Therefore, clearly by implication, the, the binding, tying is, is bringing someone in, as I understand it. And so the church is adding people to their numbers. They're getting baptized. They're coming in. And then we see them in, in cases excluding people, pushing them out. The church is tasked with marking itself out. So that when Herod arrests somebody, he knows they belong to the church. That was common knowledge. This is somebody who belongs to the church. The church is the local church is tasked to identify itself. No other church can do that but us. Other churches can mark themselves out. Only we have the authority to, to exercise those keys here. Second, second unique distinct responsibility we have is to oversee the faith of its members. Now, this is, again, another responsibility that you may not understand you have. Do you realize that every one of you has a responsibility to oversee my faith, my continued perseverance, that every one of you has a responsibility to, to oversee Pastor Daniels, Jeff Simmerman's, everyone else's here faith? Turn, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We have a responsibility to encourage each other, to, to make sure that we keep believing. And again, this gets back to the volunteerism. There's a sense in which the New Testament would encourage you. Encourage any brother you meet. Go on Facebook. Encourage a brother or sister there. Send a letter to a missionary in a foreign country. Amen and amen. What I can't do is come alongside you and say, Dave Lample, you need, you must, I command you on the authority of Jesus to, to write a letter to this missionary of encouragement. Can't do that. But the author of Hebrews can issue this command in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Speaking to a local body, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So the danger, one of their members, one of the, one of the people in this local church, might, their faith might start to cool, might start to slip, they might start to fall away. What's the remedy? Are that, is that individual here supposed to do anything about this? Well, there are other passages that would instruct the individual what to do. What do, do I do if I feel my faith cooling, if I feel my love deadening, if I feel my belief slipping away? There are passages that speak to that. Here, the individual who's in danger of slipping and falling away does nothing. The exhortation is to the body. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
We are commanded by Scripture. You are commanded by Scripture to keep a watch, to give oversight to the body that you're part of, to make sure that everyone who's part of Martinsdale Community Church makes it to the finish line, that everyone here doesn't start to slip away. And if you notice somebody slipping away, go after me, encourage them, you speak truth to them. And this isn't a volunteer issue. This is an obligation we have because we're family, because we're a body. Turn to Hebrews 10. And this is a responsibility that I know many of you take seriously. I am so blessed by the encouragement I frequently receive from many of you. And I'm blessed to, to witness others encouraging each other, spurring each other on. Hebrews 10, 22 to 25. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Notice again the author's back to this perseverance. Perseverance. Let us, brothers, sisters, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's another biblical command. I don't know if you thought of this when you're driving home, to, when you drive to church, maybe Saturday night. The Bible commands, commands us to give thought, to be purposeful. Again, in fulfilling this responsibility, I need to try to use my gifts as a part of this body to encourage somebody to faithfulness. You need to do that as well. We give thought to this. Why? Because we've got to hold fast. We've got to make it to the end. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that when the body is functioning like a body, when the family is functioning like a family, and we're speaking the truth to each other in love, we're building each other up, we're encouraging each other, and this isn't optional. And you are obligated, I am obligated to do this to you all in a way that I'm not obligated to do it to the church down the street. Yes, it's great. Yes, it's wonderful. When I get a chance to encourage other believers from other bodies, when they get to encourage me, that's a great thing. But I must do it here. I must give thought. You must give thought to how we can encourage each other. These are the types of commitments. This is what it means to be part of a local church, to take these responsibilities.